Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as the family of God. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you today. Lord, many of us, if not all of us, come into this room tired or battling things from, from the world this week. Lord, many of us have been battling temptations and unique struggles. And so, God, I pray that you would use this passage to encourage us. Lord, I pray as we think about our relationship with sin, Lord, that you would guard us from being motivated out of guilt or fear or in a sense of earning your favor, but that you would help us, God, to put to death sin motivated by grace in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Put to death sin that is in you. When you hear that phrase, I wonder what comes into your mind this morning. I wonder if some of us are thinking, all right, here we go again. Here comes another sermon about how we're all sinners and how, you know, we all need to just stop sinning. I wonder if, if some of us are wondering, wow, pastor, what, what a way to start off a sermon. Why start a sermon off that way, pastor? Where's the, where's the good morning? Where's the lighthearted sermon illustration? And look, that, that's understandable. No one likes a sermon to begin so blunt and so invasive. But the question that we should be asking is not why start a sermon off this way. The question that we should be asking is why does Paul go here at all? I mean, considering the fact of all that Paul has already said about our relationship with sin, why does Paul get so blunt and so aggressive? I mean, think about what Paul has said about sin. He has highlighted the fact that Jesus has already defeated our sin. He's highlighted the fact that if you are a believer in Jesus, that you have died to sin already. So why do we need to put to death sin? What, what should our relationship with sin be like if we are truly in Christ? It's an important question. In fact, your answer to that question really reveals your understanding of your position in Jesus and the gospel. In fact, this question is a question that the Colossians struggled with. Remember, there were these false teachers who were uh, in this church who were uh, uh, influencing them in, in all kinds of different directions, but one was their understanding of sin and how to, how to deal with their sin. So Paul has to be rather blunt here in verse 5 and in verse 8 to put to death sin and put away sin because he's correcting some dangerous beliefs about sin. In fact, let me point out a, a couple of these dangerous beliefs that were going on in the church of Colossae because I think that we can struggle with these same dangerous beliefs even today. Dangerous belief number one that we can assume that Paul is addressing is this idea that sin cannot be defeated. Okay, this is one of the reasons why Paul has to be so explicit because he's trying to tell them, no, 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 it is actually possible to have victory over sin. Paul's addressing this because there were some in this church and even some today who walk around with kind of this hopeless attitude towards sin, thinking that, well, I'm just always going to have this particular sin as part of who I am. But then the second um, dangerous belief about sin, sin is that sin is overcome with a one-time surrender. Okay, so if the first dangerous belief is kind of a hopelessness, then the other end of the spectrum is this oversimplification. 
that I can conquer sin in just one decision, just one moment, and I don't need to struggle the rest of my life because, after all, I have grace. Thirdly, though, another dangerous belief about sin I think Paul is addressing here is that sin is defeated only by removing the symptoms to our sin. So the first one is hopelessness. The second one is an oversimplification. This third one is having kind of a superficial approach to defeating sin. It's this mindset that says, I'm only going to address what I see on the outside and not really address what's going on inside my own heart, the root and the source of where sin is coming from. See, this is important to kind of understand because our, our understanding and our belief about sin is really important. In fact, Cornelius Plantinga said this about sin. He said, for the Christian church to ignore, euphemize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. See, how we understand our sin reveals our understanding of the gospel. But even on just kind of a more practical level, maybe on a more personal level this morning, maybe a more intimate level, I think each and every one of us has sin in our own lives that we desperately want to get rid of. I think we can all agree with that reality that we're all in process. We all have areas that we're kind of growing in. And so my prayer this morning is that we would look at this passage and that we would understand these verses in such a way that our hearts would be filled with hope today. That you would understand through the power of the gospel that you can experience real freedom today from the sin that's in your life. That you would understand that you cannot defeat sin, but Jesus can in and through you. That look, you, you lack strength, you lack willpower, you lack self-control, but in Christ You have everything that you need in order to experience real freedom from sin. So look, my my hope is that this is not just another message that's telling you to stop sinning, motivated out of guilt. But my hope today is that you you would hear this message that says, choose Jesus motivated out of grace. And that's what I want us to see today. And it really begins with with having this correct understanding of our sin. Just to illustrate this, in uh, World War II, there was uh, an important distinction between D-Day and V-Day that historians largely agree that World War II was won by the Allied forces in the Battle of Normandy, also known as D-Day. Many of you know this, but it took almost a year for the full effect of that victory at D-Day to result in Germany to fully surrender, uh, also known as V-Day. And in fact, uh, the the time in which D-Day and V-Day occurred were some of the bloodiest battles in all of World War II, that Germany did not go down without a fight. And so even though D-Day occurred, uh, Germany and the Axis powers were defeated, that defeat was not fully realized until V-Day. Look, the reality is for us as Christians, our spiritual D-Day has already occurred some 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. That Jesus Christ defeated our enemy, sin, and Satan. 
And yet, our V-Day hasn't occurred yet, not until Jesus comes back. And so we are living in the in-between time, or what uh, theologians call the already but not yet chapter in God's redemptive story. Jesus has the victory, but not yet fully. And just like in World War II, there were real casualties in between D-Day and V-Day, so too for us as Christians, there can be real spiritual casualties when we fail to understand what our D-Day means in our defeat in our battle against our enemy, sin. And look, this aligns with our main idea in Colossians chapter 3. This is what we introduced last week that we're going to be unpacking uh, each of the next couple of weeks as we walk through this really important chapter, that your position in Christ determines your priorities, shapes your perspective, and empowers your practice. Okay, so last week, we, we talked about our position in Jesus. We talked about our priorities and our perspective. We, we looked and, and saw the importance of verses 1 through 4, that if you don't understand who you are in Jesus and, and the power of the gospel, there's no way you can actually do verses 5 through 17. And so today and, and the next couple of weeks, we're, we're going to look at how our position in Christ empowers our practice, empowers how we live. In other words, the question we're going to be answering today is how do we connect our position in Christ with experiencing freedom from sin? Okay, And we're going to answer that question by looking at two things from Paul in these verses. We're going to look at the challenge and we're going to look at the motivation. The challenge and the motivation. Here's uh, the first one we're going to look at is the challenge. Now, this new position in Jesus drastically changes our relationship with sin. That's why we see the word therefore in verse 5. Paul says, put to death therefore. Okay, whenever you see this word in the Bible, you should ask the question, what is therefore therefore? Okay, so Paul is is using therefore in order to connect us back to verses 1 through 4 in our position in Jesus so that we understand how to connect that to how we put to death sin. So with this one word, Paul is reminding us that in Christ you have already died. In Christ you've already been raised in Jesus. In Christ you are hidden in him and that you are seated in the heavenlies. So Paul is is just quickly reminding us through the power of the gospel, we are freed from its enslaving power of sin And yet through the Spirit of God who lives in us, our call now is to do battle against the ongoing presence of sin in our lives. So the power of sin has been conquered. Now we have to deal with the ongoing presence of it. And it starts with understanding this challenge. Paul here in these verses gives us a challenge uh, that is seen in the two commands in verse 5 and verse 8. First command is to put to death sin. In verse 8, it's to put it away. Verse 5, this command to put to death sin, what is earthly in you, is best understood in light of the fact that as a believer in Jesus, your old self has already died. It's really important. Okay, that, that is an event that has occurred in the past but it has present implications. Okay, this was the idea that we talked about even in chapter 2, verse 12, of being buried with Christ in baptism. You've died with Christ. 
Even in chapter 2, verse 20 of dying with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. So the putting to death here is not a continual thing that we are to do. It's already been done in the past, but it impacts how we understand and how we treat and deal with sin today. Or to put it a different way, Paul, what he's after here is your attitude and your understanding towards sin. If you have the NASB, the NASB translation, it it reads this way, to consider the members of your earthly body as dead, to consider the the attitude of our sin in our old self. This is echoed elsewhere in Paul's writings, like uh, Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay, so this attitude towards sin, it it directly impacts how we deal with it since we've already died to it. But let me me explain this a little bit further. Looking at this Greek word, put to death, this can mean to mortify. It can mean to slay. But as one commentary pointed out, this word can also mean to wear out, to deprive of its power, to deprive of its strength, to destroy its strength. So this word and its usage carries the idea of something, while totally alive, had a functional deadness to it, that Paul is actually getting at this idea of intentional atrophy of the flesh. It's really helpful, at least for me personally, understanding how I put to death sin, because atrophy means that something is growing weaker and weaker over time by disuse. Right? If you say that you, you, the muscle in your arm has developed atrophy, what, what you're saying is that your arm is still there, but, but it's no longer useful. Right? Or you might say it's, it's as good as dead. Right? We, we say that from time to time. It's still there, but it doesn't really have a function to it. And so in the same way, the, the presence of sin within believers is something that remains But the power of sin has already been conquered. So our enemy, our our sin, it's defeated, it's dormant, and yet it can still create enormous problems, which is why we need, through the power of Christ, to choose to starve our fleshly desires so it grows weaker and weaker and weaker over time. And we starve the flesh by exercising godliness. One of the keys to victory over flesh is to really find a thousand creative ways to not activate the flesh. It's to look at at all of these windows and and doorways to sin that were wide open before Jesus saved us. And it's to go back and to shut every window, close every door, and lock it. The Bible actually helps us and gives us specific uh, strategies of how to do this. Throughout the New Testament, we, we see these words like avoidance and prevention, and disuse, and, and fleeing. Uh, one example of this is 2 Timothy chapter 2. There are dozens of these examples, but here's one. It says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. That's a strategy of how to put to death sin. Starve the flesh by exercising godliness. And so this challenge given by Paul is very simple. He's saying, look, you've already died to sin, and so now you need to starve it. Let it grow weak. 
It's not who you are anymore. Avoid it and prevent it and neglect it and run from it. So look, the the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning is in what ways are we exercising the desires of our flesh? Like in what ways are, are we knowingly or unknowingly activating sinful desires even though we've already died in our old self? Look, the reality is, is that some of us have had to, to learn the hard way that once is never enough. That some of us have had to learn the hard way that when you exercise flesh, it, it grows stronger and, and stronger. And that it's not really totally fulfilled with just one sin, but it needs more and more sin in order for it to be fulfilled. I've shared this quote before by Adrian Rogers, but it's so good and so accurate. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. Look, the truth of the matter is, is that very few of us actually seek to plunge the dark depths of sin. But what happens is it's these small steps away from Christ, away from doing what is right. It's, it's one compromise at a time. It's this slow drift in the wrong direction. But here's why I really, I really appreciate Paul in this passage, is that he doesn't just tell us to stop sinning. <laughs> Paul's actually going to be really helpful here, and he's going to show us how this slow drift can occur in our lives. I want you to see something here. See, the way that he follows this first command to put to death sin, he follows that up with a specific list of sins in verse 5. Now, of course, he wants us to put to death all sin, but he has these five in mind, and these five all have to do within the realm of sexual immorality. You have sexual morality, you have impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, here's how Paul helps us. Don't miss this. Paul wants us to put to death sin, to not uh, have this slow drift in the wrong direction by not just addressing the symptoms, but getting to the root issue within our hearts. See, this is why he uses that word greed in this list or covetousness. Uh, When you first read that, you probably thought, man, that that feels like that doesn't belong with the other four. Like the other four very clearly have to do with sexual morality, but but greed? What does that have to do within this arena? Well, what Paul is doing, he's actually explaining what drives our sexual immorality. See, don't think greed in terms of money. Think of greed in terms of even sexual greed. Paul's point here is that the root of sexual sin, whether it's pornography, whether it's sexual sin in premarital or extramarital or or in our minds, is caused because of sexual greed in our hearts. It's this ever-increasing desire for more and more pleasure, which is idolatry. So look, the way that we put to death the sin here is not just by addressing the symptoms, but it's looking at the desires in our hearts and starving them by feasting our desires on Jesus. See, look, the battle for you to have victory over sin lies in the battle of your desires. 
See, this is why Paul has spent so much time talking about the preeminence of Jesus. He spent so much time at length talking about his sufficiency and his supremacy and his beauty. Why? It's because for, he wants your hearts to look at Jesus and say, I want him more than I want the sin. And that's really where the battle is won. We, we have far too many Christians who are walking around and they are giving their desires over to what their flesh wants instead of training the desires of their hearts to want Jesus. That's how you experience real freedom. You get to the root issue. There's a lot more I could say on, on sexual morality here. There's probably a lot more I should say. But Paul continues, and he provides a second challenge in verse 8. He wants us to not only put to death sin, but to put it away or to lay it aside, some translations have. Now, these two commands are really communicating the same idea here. You could think about it this way, that put to death is figurative for laying aside the sins or putting the sins away. And Paul is giving us this command because our sin is getting in the way of us experiencing satisfaction in Jesus. This is a common New Testament strategy for having victory over sin. Lay it aside, right? Hebrews 12.1, lay aside the sin that, that so easily entangles us. But notice in verse 8, Paul gives us another list of five things that he wants us to put away. Right? If you look at this list, we've got anger, wrath, and uh, malice. We have obscene talk from your mouth. Even verse 9, you can throw in a sixth one here. Do not lie to one another. Look, if you weren't hit hard with that first list of five, how are you doing with this list of five? Look again. You see this idea of the symptoms and the roots. The symptoms here are your words. Did you catch that? He talks about the, the slander and the obscene talk and, and even the lying in verse 9. But the roots and the source of the sin is what is in the heart, the anger, the wrath, and the malice. Paul wants us to address that right there. See, so often we, we all want to put away sin but so often we're not going deep enough. We're addressing the symptoms far too often. And with words, for example, some of us will say, okay, I want to clean up my, my language. I'm going, to get a rid, I'm going to get rid of these four words from my vocabulary. Or I'm going to be a more encouraging person with my words. Or we say, you know, even my written words on social media, I'm just going to take a break from social media, and that, that'll fix things. Those are good things, but, but look, you're not going deep enough. You're not addressing what is in the heart that, that's causing those words to come out. See, Paul's point is that our words reveal the condition of our hearts. Or as Jesus said it in Luke 6.45, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And man, what a challenge for each and every one of us, especially during the season of life. What a challenge for us to, to think about our words, whether they're, they're verbalized or they're written, text messages, emails, or social media, whatever it is, and to ask the question, what, what, what's behind my words? What, what, what's driving the words? What's in my heart? And is it characteristic of someone whose position is in Jesus? Look, Paul's challenge very simply here is, he wants us as followers of Jesus 
to be so saturated with the power of the gospel that we are winning the battle against sin by doing the hard work in the heart. What the reality is is that non-Christians can get rid of symptoms. Non-Christians can turn over a, a, a new leaf, at least for a period of time. But it's those who are in Christ who can experience lasting change by identifying the source of sin that's in our hearts, taking the gospel and the power of the gospel, uprooting that source, and replacing it with the beauty and the power of Jesus. That's hard. That's difficult. That, that is a process of growing and looking more and more like Jesus. Let me give you two simple but hard questions to ask yourself as you're waging war against sin. Question number one is, is just to ask, what's driving my symptom here? You identify some sin that's going on. What's behind it? What's in my heart? What's, what's causing the pornography? What's causing the gossip? Whatever the symptom is. And then secondly, another important question is, what do I have in Jesus that I'm struggling to believe will fulfill me and give me exactly what I need? What do I have in Jesus that I'm struggling to believe will fulfill me and give me exactly what I need? Well, a lot more we could say on this topic. We need to move on here. I want to address why we can do this. I want to address the motivation behind this, right? Are we relying on our own strength? Are we motivated by guilt or fear that we're going to lose God's love? No, those motivations, they don't work. They don't last. Paul provides two better ones in these couple of verses here that we haven't uh, addressed in full. The the, the first motivation from verse 6 to winning the battle against sin is to remember who God is. Remember who God is. After he gives this list of the, the first list of five sins, Paul says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Look, the reality is, is that those who have violated God's moral laws and have not turned to Christ in faith and repented of their sins, will be held accountable and judged on the last day. And that judgment is an expression of God's holiness and God's justice. So Paul's saying, look, remember who God is, that he's holy, that he hates sin, that he will judge uh, sinners on the last day, whoever is not in Christ. But he's also reminding the believer that because of God's standard of holiness and justice, that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in order to pay for our sins and absorb all of the wrath from the Father so that you wouldn't have to. So Paul's saying, why would you go back to the same kinds of sin that led Jesus, the Son of God, to, to, to bleed and die? Don't go back there. Remember who God is. And then secondly here, another motivation that's really important is to remember who you are. Remember who you are. Verses 9 and 10, this is seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Look, this putting off and putting on language in Paul's day was most commonly used of dressing oneself with clothes. So Paul is saying here, stop sinning because you have stripped off the clothes of the old man. It's not who you are anymore. Those clothes don't fit. 
They're, they're worn out. They're useless. Stop wearing these old sinful traits of the old self. But you are to put on the new self in Christ through growing in knowledge and understanding of who God is. But then Paul takes this a little bit further, reminding us of who we truly are. Verse 11, Paul even redefines our deepest identity. He says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Look, in exhorting them to stop identifying with traits of the old self, he takes it a step further And he says that your true and the deepest identity of who you are is not based on your ethnicity, Greeks and Jews. It's not based on your religion, circumcised and uncircumcised. It's not cultural, barbarian or Scythian. It's not socioeconomic, slave or free. But you have a deeper identity, which is in Christ. Now, that's not to say that those distinctions are unimportant or that they go away. Paul's not advocating for kind of a a color blindness or a cultural blindness, whatever you want to say. But Paul's point here is that those distinctions have been eclipsed by a deeper identity marker, which is being in Christ. That's why the gospel unites people from all kinds of walks in life. So practically speaking, for me, I'm first and foremost a Christ follower. First and foremost, what who I am, my identity is I am in Christ, who just so happens to be a white male middle class uh, OSU fan who's still grieving the fact that there's no Big Ten football this year. But it's not the other way around. Who I really am, the deepest reality is being in Christ. Look, remember who you are. Look, this motivation is, is completely different than the false teachers. I don't know if you picked up on that. Chapter 2, verse 23, Paul says the false teachers, they had an appearance of wisdom and the severity of how they treated their bodies, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, Paul's point is not even the most disciplined, committed, uh, self-controlled person can defeat sin outside of Christ. Why? because they have the wrong motivation. Stop sitting doesn't work. What works here is for your heart not just to be told not to sin, but your heart needs to see a greater and a more beautiful, more desirable option to say yes to, which is Jesus. And look, that changes our motivations. That changes who we are, because who you are in Christ is that you are forgiven You are washed in the righteousness of Christ and that you have everything you need to live a life of godliness. Well, as I close this morning, I just want to point out one of the the most important words in this passage. It's it's the word now in verse 8. Paul says, but now you must put them all away. I want you to underline that word now, circle it, start, do whatever you need just to show the importance of it. Paul's using this word now as a declaration that there has been a dramatic change from what used to be. Like Paul is saying now is the time to be done with sin. Now is the time for you to walk in freedom. Now is the time to, to put it to death and to lay it aside and to choose Jesus. 
And for some of us who are in this room or, or if you're tuning in online right now, look, now is the time for you to put to death that nagging sin that has had too many victories in, in your life. Now is the time to, to lay that before Jesus, to confess it, to turn from it, and to fill your heart with the beauty of Jesus who truly satisfies. And so look, this morning we want to give you an opportunity to do just that. We want to give you just a couple of minutes before we, we sing this last song, just for you and the Lord, just to talk to one another, just to put into practice what this passage is calling us to. And, and I just want to encourage you to do three things in this moment. I want you to ask the Lord to search your heart. Have the humility, God, search my heart. And then secondly, uh, just to confess the sin that he reveals in your heart. And then thirdly, to cling to Jesus. Maybe even go back to Colossians chapter 1 and read verses 18 to 23 just to show the supremacy of Jesus. But search, confess, and cling. Let me pray, just kind of open that time up. God, would you give us the openness, the humility, even the courage, God, for you to have full access in our hearts right now. God, search us. Help us, God, to take seriously this battle against sin, but not to wage war against it out of our own power, but to use the power of the gospel that not only saves us, but matures us. God, help us to see the beauty of Jesus, that he is so, so much greater than what any sin could offer. I pray that your spirit would work in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.